0: This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 8, Episode 16. Welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network, a podcast brought to you by Mountain Man Medical. Today is Thursday, June 8th, 2023, and I'm your host, Jacob Paulson. And today I'm also joined by Matthew Marister. Hello, hello. It's gonna be a good time. Riley's not here with us. He's traveling to a USPSA match, and then later uh, this weekend he'll be teaching a class down in Texas. And so we will proceed in life without Riley for this this time around. Uh, we appreciate everyone who's here with us live. This is also being recorded and will be published later in our odd-up podcast feed. Um, via consult carry.com. you can of course always find the show anywhere you like to listen to podcasts you know google podcasts and itunes and spotify's and audibles and all, all the places all right so before you know we dive into the nuts and bolts of this let me kind of introduce the topic here i've been a farm instructor for a few minutes since 2007 And uh, my curriculum, my class, my content that I teach in my standard concealed carry class uh, has changed a lot, as I would hope it would for anyone who's been doing it for that long, because I keep changing. What I understand, what I know, what I think to be true, what I believe to be the most important things to convey to those students also changes. And I happen to have always spent that part of my life, my firearm instructor life in states where I can teach darn near whatever I want. I started out in Utah where they did have some mandatory curriculum, but there's some flexibility on you know, how you talk about things and if you want to add in additional things. But now I'm in Colorado where, where Matthew, I don't know if you knew this, but I can, I can teach students whatever I want. As long as I go over some basic safety rules, the rest of the class is completely up to me. And so I have complete autonomy that way. And so a few years ago, uh, a student made a comment to me about how overwhelming it is, like how it feels like they got to buy all this stuff, and I was like, "Oh my gosh! Like, have I have I given the impression that it's it's too much? You know, that it's going to be too too expensive or too difficult?" And so I decided to create this this list, and this is what's going to be the premise of our episode today. And this list is sort of meant to be the the very core, most essential required things to be a responsible concealed carrier. And that's that's what we're going for here. And Matthew may disagree with the list. I don't know. As we go through, he might have some comments or might think something's missing. I don't know, but um, we'll we'll find out. <laughs> I, I got thick enough skin to deal with that. So that's the premise here. Anything else to disclaim before we jump in, Matthew?
1: No. If you want to just tell him where the where the list ah. came from, or like, oh yeah, it article. is
0: published on our He's site from, currently, and, yeah. and it may be I'll publish it independently as its own article on our site, but I was recently doing a very comprehensive article on the site called The Ultimate Guide to Responsible Constitutional Carry. And the article on the site is intended to kind of be like a constitutional carry class. Like for someone who lives in a state, one of the 26 or 27 or however many there are now, states that uh, has constitutional carry and decides, I'm just going to grab a gun, shove it in my pants and go out the door because I can legally now. And that person has perhaps never taken a class, doesn't, you know, has, has never gone, has no experience in this this little arena. I wrote this article for, for that person. So sort of like, hey, here's a thing online that you can go read for free that basically tells you everything you need to know about this new thing you're gonna be doing now. And one of the sections of that article is this responsible concealed carrier shopping list. So we're kind of extracting it from that article for the purposes of today's episode and focusing on, on it in, uh, you know, independently or solely. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> All right. So the first thing on this list, Matthew, is probably the thing I've gotten the most crap for in the comments of the article. People are not very, very happy with me on this. But the first thing on my shopping list, a concealable handgun with a minimum of 10 round capacity of 9 millimeter or greater caliber. So mm-hmm. there's some specifics in there. The gun has to be concealable, which you know, is going to vary by person. Um, it has to hold at least 10 rounds. And I specify of 9mm or greater caliber. So the wheel gun people are very angry with me right now. Of course. What do you think?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, here, here's the thing. Like everybody has to make their own criteria you know, like this is this is your criteria, right? Like this is what you look for when you're choosing a firearm for concealed carry. Somebody else might have different criteria, or different needs, or um, you know, preferences. But this is this is yours, and I think that like you can justify mm-hmm. um, for the detractors who say like, oh, well, you know, 380 is just as good as yeah. or 22, you know, whatever. It, I mean, that's fine. We <laughs> you can have the the caliber debates and the round capacity, but this is, this is what your recommendation is. And I, I think that, uh, you know, it's not, it's not out of bounds by any stretch. So that's, People that's, Matthew, disagree, but,
0: that's Matthew's way of saying that he doesn't totally disagree with me, but he maybe wouldn't have said it the way I said it, but it's not bad.
1: No, I, <laughs> here, like, <laughs> I, I actually, I actually agree with you. Okay. Like, I, I think like, <laughs> Um, you know, in, in maybe so, some of the arguments people have are like the, they, they just don't like the absolutist of like, mm. oh, well, you know, you're saying it has to be 10 rounds. And sometimes I want to carry a, a wheel gun. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. So let me justify
0: this. Like, let me try and defend myself a little bit for the people who who disagree with my concealable handgun with a minimum 10 round capacity of nine millimeter greater caliber. So things under nine millimeter, uh, I'm not okay with because, 380, by the way, I think is a perfectly acceptable defensive round. I have no problem with 380. My problem is that it's too expensive. The the cost of 380 is the reason I don't like it. So if you carry 380, but you just got no problem throwing down the cash to buy the ammo, then then more power to you, no problem. I'm good with that. But it's it's an unfair, unjust thing in my world that a less effective round costs more. So to me, I set 9mm as the you know minimum. Um, caliber in in the you know in the step ladder of of uh, stopping power I guess because less than nine millimeter the only really acceptable option is three eighty and it costs way more and so I'm not gonna like if, if if unless if you're operating on a budget and most of Americans are then I I think three eighty is going to be challenging for you I think you're going to be not as happy with it and it's and I don't think that nine millimeter I don't think there's people out there who are like, I just can't handle nine. Like 380 I can manage, but nine is just too hard for me to shoot. I I just don't believe that's true. That's not been my experience. I've never observed that it it makes that kind of a difference in terms of how manageable the gun is. So there's the potential argument of, well, I can have more capacity with 380 auto. Okay, that's potentially valid, but you're going to pay so much more for less power. And so is it a significantly less? No. And so that's why, you know, whatever. If you want to carry 380, that's fine. My, my main challenge there is cash. It's a budgeting issue. You're paying more for less effective ammo. And you're not going to get significantly more capacity. It's not like the difference between 9 and 40 or 9 and 45. The difference between 9 and 380 is, is much more subtle in terms of capacity. And as to capacity, the other place I might take some flack on this, my defense there is simply that in in the gunfights that we look at, the, the you know interviews that we conduct and the DGUs that we look at and the conversations I have with people who analyze thousands of gunfights, people like John Correa, Dave Spaulding, um, when you hear from those guys and the intel that they have, the general consensus is three, four, five rounds might get it done, um, maybe even on average. But I think today with the available handguns on the marketplace, there's really no excuse to limit yourself that way because you you know, the odds are not minuscule that you'll need more than five rounds, that you'll need more than six or seven rounds. And so you got to draw a line Some, If, if you're going to draw a line, I guess you don't have to draw a line. But if you're going to draw a line somewhere, I choose to draw it at 10. And by the way, I got that from Jeff Gonzalez. Jeff Gonzalez is the first one who told me that this was his standard. And um, I just, you know, I heard the way he defended that idea, and I felt very comfortable with it. And so it's arbitrary. I'm first one to admit it's, somewhat, it's not like I have some data that says 10 rounds is how many rounds you're going to need in a gunfight. It is arbitrary. I'm drawing a line somewhere. But I think that there's enough options on the marketplace today in terms of guns uh, that are available at, in a, an affordable way that you can get a minimum of 10 rounds of 9mm uh, for any body type, any person of any potential physical limitation.
1: Yeah, and I, I'd even say like – Almost the capacity uh, of the firearm. Let's like just set aside the whole how many rounds you're going to need for X gunfight or what, and just say, like, if you have a gun that has, you know, most semi automatic handguns nowadays, if you have something that's like a five round capacity, semi, we're talking about like minuscule guns, right? Yeah, and unmanageable. So, right they're they're difficult to man they're very concealable but they're not fun to shoot they're not easy to grip their sights are normally less than ID. like so like it almost by setting a a capacity of 10 rounds or more you're almost automatically pushing yourself into like a p365 or a hellcat or something that's more manageable so if you're not familiar with like the difficulty of shooting such a small gun compared to something with, that's a little bit bigger, right? Just the inherent, you know, ability to grip, grip it and use it. Um, I think it kind of almost forces you into that, that bracket of, of gun or that, you know, I don't know, uh, class of gun yeah. or, or, or whatever. There's,
0: there's also a training issue. Frankly, if you, if your everyday carry gun is a gun that holds five rounds, like I would love to hear how much ammo you're shooting on an annual basis. Cause for you training, going to the range and getting some practice or taking a class And training with that gun must be miserable. I mean, it just must suck. Like, I'm just trying to be transparent. Like, I I think it would be very less enjoyable for me to have that kind of experience where every five rounds, I got to stop and reload. Like, that just sounds like a pain in the butt. Um, Not to mention, there's a reload time challenge in in a you know gunfight situation. Now, I will also add this: if you're a person who, you know you go back and forth between a couple different guns. Sometimes you carry a five shot, you know, J frame revolver or something. And other times you're carrying a, you know, a Glock 19. It just depends on what you're feeling like that day or what you're wearing. Like all good. I think that you're probably making informed decisions, personal decisions. Oh, I'm not, I'm not upset with you. I don't think you're a bad person. Um, I just think that, you know, if we're going to kind of draw a line somewhere, this is where I draw it. So you can't be a concealed carrier without a gun. So a gun has to be on this shopping list. And I think that for me, there's some minimum standards because I can't just say any gun is okay. I can't even say any concealable gun is okay. That certainly cannot be the case uh, for a responsible concealed carrier. So we're going to have to add some criteria. And for me, I add criteria both in capacity and in caliber. And so that's that's where I draw some lines. Mm-hmm.
1: And then there's the argument, you know, the, the, then uh, like I guess a, a branch off of that would be like, all right, well, you know, the, the reliability of the firearm in, in your hands, right? Like how, cause every, every manufacturer could have something, you know, a, a lemon of a gun or whatever, but like, you know, and can you buy, is it a gun that you can get holsters for? We'll talk about that later, but like, can you get holsters for it? Can you get, you know, aftermarket sites, if you want something like that, like, yeah, it, it, then you can start fleshing out kind of like those, you know, specifics or That's super you know,
0: valid. Uh, yeah. Really good point. Like we had somebody the other day contact us. Who really upset. We don't make a holster for some like IWI something or another gun with a TLR seven. A like, I was just like, no one makes a holster for this gun, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck. Anyway. Yeah. So those are valid, valid comments. All right, let's move to number two on my list. Matthew, Uh, I have it worded this way, name brand hollow point ammo for defensive use.
1: Yeah. Uh, And, and like everything, I don't know, maybe it's just a sign of our like culture, but everything has to be debated and everything has to be so like there has to be an, you know, camp on this side and that side. Look, I, like, I truly believe that if you carry a firearm for defensive purposes, you should, you should carry it with, hollow point ammunition in it like I, I i get the people that are like well you know like penetration and and all this stuff and like if i need to shoot through the barrier you know ball ammunition and was good enough for world war Two. i get like i but like in reality um you know you're not going to find any law enforcement agency using ball ammunition in a you know in a in their uh in duty, duty firearms yeah. they're just they're just not because Um, there, there is a risk of, there's a bigger risk of, you know, either pass through or, um, just, you know, the, the way, um, ballistics are with, with a, uh, ball ammunition with, with ricochets and and how it goes through different, different materials. And so, um, I just think it it makes sense and, um, and and you want to get something that cycles through your gun. So the hollow point ammunition, you have to make sure because not all the hollow point ammunition is exactly the same as far as, you know, this, the, the way the the projectiles, um, uh, design. So some of them have different angles and it might not reliably feed in your firearm. So not only getting a hollow point ammunition that is reliable in your, in your firearm. And, uh, but you know, it, it expands reliably, it penetrates consistently, uh, it, it, you know, certain depth consistently expands consistently. Um, those things are something that I, I think is, is really important. Um, mm-hmm. and, and why you have it on your list.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So hollow points are the best industry, best practice. Like that's to me, sh- it's one of those things that shouldn't be debated that much, but, it, but whatever. Um, but I use the word name brand hollow point. Cause I am, I think that, um, certainly, we can split hairs about you know ammo the same way we could about guns you know the Sig versus the Glock or the you know but for me if, it, if like have you heard of that ammo company it's, it's and they they sell hollow points it's probably pretty sufficient if you want more specificity you know you can contact your local law enforcement agency and find out what they carry and you can go buy the same stuff uh, but pretty much if you've heard of it if it's Hornady if it's Federal if it's Sig Sauer um, you know it, it if it's one of those big brands it's probably pretty good. Is probably pretty good, so that's a good starting point without splitting hairs. Uh, So, yeah, and to your point, Matthew, obviously testing it through the gun, making sure it cycles properly, um, and and probably you know then refer you know buying full metal jackets for the majority of your shooting, you know, recreational training, practice, et cetera, to save on cost is important. But but you are going to have like required right required for responsible concealed carry. You are going to have to buy some name brand hollow point ammo. So that's number two on the list. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. Uh, Thank you for the comments from those who are listening live so far. Eddie, Neo, good to to hear from you. All right. Quickly, just wanted to mention a a first sponsor message of our episode today. Today's episode is brought to you by CCW Safe. um, My preferred choice for self-defense related coverage in some sort of incident it's the team at CCW Safe that I'm relying on to come to the aid of me and my family to manage the situation and help us not only financially but also emotionally, mentally and uh, ultimately to prevail in the legal fight that may that may follow. So check it out ccwsafe.com. you can save 10% with the podca- with this coupon code CC podcast uh, oh, and if you're a member of Guardian Nation, which you can learn more about at GuardianNation.com. Then in the members area, there's a code there you can save up to 20%. So check that out and learn more. Third on my list, Matthew, a quality, quick access, safe for emergency staging. Bit of a mouthful.
1: (laughs) Well, um, yeah, this is important. Uh, We need to be responsible with our firearms. And I think I'll let you kind of, kind of differentiate these things, but I think, the, the issue is, is, is some people will think like, um, especially if you're new to concealed carry or firearms in general, you either think of a, a, of a gun vault or like a safe, like a big vault that, you know, is a combination or you need a key or something like that. Um, and, and so the, the objection to getting a safe is like, um, well, this is going to be my firearm that I'm going to use for home defense. And if I need a, you know, use this dial to you know put, put, put a combination on in, in, in the safe and why do I even have this 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 firearm because by the time someone you know I get to it if someone breaks in. So like opening their their idea or opening their minds to the availability of different types of safes with different you know uh, uh, I guess the way you access it is, is important and so you can use the right safe for the right application.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, well summarized. Uh, there are different applications, and in this case, if you're going to conceal carry, then we already discussed that you're going to buy a gun that's optimized for that purpose, and that gun may or may not be your go-to home defense gun, but pres- presumably it could be, or very likely might be. And so, what you know, there are going to be situations where you don't have a gun on you. Whether you know, in my case, like when I'm sleeping, would would be the primary one of those situations. But there's going to be instances depending on your lifestyle and how you choose to manage that that you're going to need access to a gun and that gun's going to need to be locked up because it's irresponsible for there to be a gun in the home that's not in the immediate control of a human and not locked up in something like it really needs to be one of one of those two in my opinion. Okay, that's my opinion. So with that in mind then if we're going to put it in a in a safe then we need to you know for potential defensive use, right? I think of it as staging as opposed to storage. When I store a gun I'm just putting it in storage. Like, I don't need to get it quickly. There's not going to be – like, it's not for emergency. This is not for Red Dawn, right, Patrick Swayze style. Like, storage is like – it's just storage. It's just a place to keep the thing where I'm protecting the asset from unauthorized use or theft, okay, And, and from natural elements too, humidity, rust, corrosion, whatever. So that's storage, but staging a gun, when you stage a gun, right? Like I think I might have to access this gun. Then you, to to your point, Matthew, and your verbiage, I may be misquoting you, but you basically said, then I I'm, I need to make sure I'm using a safe that is optimized for that purpose, for that objective, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is not some rabbit hole we need that I intend to go down where we're going to talk about well this brand of safe or this locking mechanism. The simple the simple purpose of the discussion is to say, have you really thought through? how quickly and effectively you can access a gun from a safe that you're staging uh, the gun in, right? If I'm staging the gun for emergency access and the safe needs to be one that still secures the gun and prevents unauthorized use and theft, but also allows me to open and and access the gun quickly and efficiently, uh, potentially in the dark when my heart is pounding, right? So, Yes, we want to avoid things probably like key locks. If if the only way to open your safe is with a key, that's probably not ideal. We want to avoid com- dial pad combination lock- locks. Think like your high school locker. Uh, that's that's going to be a disaster waiting to happen for sure. Uh, even when I'm, I have a gun safe like that, and it's it's a storage gun safe, not a staging gun safe. But my storage, I have a storage gun safe that's a, like a dial pad thing, and when 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 I'm calm and focused, and the lights are on. It sometimes takes me three tries to open the dang thing. Three times past this number, two times Forget it. There's no way I'm getting that open when my heart's pounding. Okay? So we got to think through that a little bit. I really like a digital button keypad. Uh, type say specifically ones that are kind of oriented to the shape of my four fingers, so I can very naturally kind of align those in there, even in the dark without looking, find those buttons and put in the combination. Those are kind of my favorite design. I think originally really pioneered by Gun Vault today, that kind of style available from several brands. Um, some people really like biometric. I'm not really sold on the biometric yet, but I think it potentially meets the criteria that we're discussing if you feel that it's reliable enough for you. Uh, but the the point is to think through this idea of what am I locking the gun in? And because in order to be a responsible concealed carrier, you have to have a gun safe. Like you can't not have one. And so we're presuming that you are going to want to stage your gun for potential emergency use when it's not on you. So then we're presuming you need a quick access safe. That That's kind of what I'm getting at here is that we put this on the list of required you know, concealed carrier shopping list because... You can't be a responsible concealed carrier and not have a gun safe. And if you're going to have a gun safe and it's going to be your only gun safe for that gun you carry around concealed, then we're presuming you need a safe that allows you quick access for potential emergency use.
1: Yeah. And and, and I know we're not, the, the purpose of this is the scope isn't to like go specific types of safes and stuff. But I will mention that like things that like you don't think about. As, you know, as a new concealed carrier, you don't think about it until it, it presents itself. And, and I would say, you know, for you, um, you know, until you, you start carrying your firearm everywhere, you don't realize the places where you may be prohibited from carrying it. Um, and so it might make sense to consider um, having a some sort of way to lock the, the the gun up in the vehicle, and I'm not talking about storage of like, hey, you know, I get in the car, I take my gun out, and I put it in this this holster as I'm driving around, and then you know this is this is how I carry the gun. I'm talking about. In the, the event you have to go say into the police department or the post office, into yeah. the post office or, or a, the doctor's office or something. They're going to be, you know, you're going to be going, getting x rays and stuff and you can't show up with the firearm. And, and so like, yes, we don't want to store the gun in the vehicle, but if, if there is a purpose, you know, a reason where you can't get out of it and you need to, to store the gun, um, having some place to lock it other than, the you know the glove box or hidden somewhere in the in the trunk under the spare tire or something like that, um, having a place to to secure it um, is not a bad idea, so just something to consider.
0: yep, love that, love that. I'm, I mean, I'm really glad you brought that up because that that kind of becomes necessary in the lifestyle of a concealed carrier. so that's good stuff. All right, next on my list, and this is the one that's most dangerous, uh, meaning it could really pull me into a rabbit hole if I'm not careful. <laughs> But you're going to need a quality holster that meets the four holster rules. We've done a podcast episode, at least one, maybe more than one in the past, about the four holster rules. We have dedicated articles on our website about the four holster rules. Um, in a classroom environment, this is something I would spend some time going going into. And so I, we will quickly review those today. But I, I I think, Matthew, for me, it is my own belief that on average in america the number one biggest mistake that concealed carriers make when they first start to carry concealed guns is buying a bad holster Um, and that's a bold statement of all the dumb things that people could do coming out of a concealed carry class and getting a permit um, for me to say that i think the number one biggest mistake they make is buying a crappy junky, not optimal holster is pretty bold and i and i truly believe that's true um it's just one of those things because, A, the vast majority of holsters for sale are not very good. Uh, B, the vast majority of places where people would go to buy a holster do not generally stock good ones. Pretty hard to find good holsters at a sportsman's warehouse, a Cabela's, a Bass Pro Shop, a Shields. Like These are just not companies uh, by nature, like not necessarily their fault, but they're retailers who are looking for products that they can move quickly. That uh, they have SKUs that are applicable to the vast ma- majority of buyers. They have high profit margins, and they are built have have good distribution. They work with retailers, so they're large companies that have that kind of distribution. By nature of some of those constraints, you just generally don't find quality products holsters uh, at those kinds of retailers. So. For, for those reasons, not to mention cost is an issue. When you're already spending money on all this stuff we're talking about today, and you got to choose between that fifty dollar holster online that looks just about the same as that ninety dollar one, um, without you know a lot of discernment, you're probably naturally going to buy the fifty dollar one. So, so Matthew, you know, what are your thoughts on this this issue? Obviously, a holsters required to be responsible because yeah. you can't shove it in the pants, right? Well, you can, but well, I, I, you can. <laughs> but that's bad. So, so what are we talking about when we say a quality holster that meets the four holster rules?
1: Yeah. um, You know, I thought I was going to have some smart things to say, but you basically said all of them (laughs) that I had in my head as far as like these, these things that the reason why people end up with bad holsters and, and I'll uh, like, as, as we're going through this, I keep going back to like the things I wish I knew back then that I know now
0: you and I are guilty
1: yeah I've I've used crappy
0: holsters I promise
1: yeah and that's why like that's why I think we get to the point where we're kind of like hey just as advice like it's not because you know like I it's because we made these mistakes personally or know people who have and um but yeah and, and and I think holster Actual design has come a long way, even in the last like four or five years, as far as like how, um, you know, the different types of holsters, the way um, like with wedges and claws and different types of clips and and, in really thinking about um, the design of a holster is so much different than like, even like, I don't know, five, six years ago, where it was just like, okay, as long as you get a holster that fits your gun, you're good. And I'll tell you, like a quality holster, not only is it safe and, and, but like it is going to. I know a lot of people that probably could carry, that stopped carrying a firearm because their holster just stinks and it it's uncomfortable and it doesn't conceal. And like you, you have a small gun, like a, let's say a P365, and you can't conceal. And you're like, well, I can't go much smaller than this. I'm at, you know, 10 rounds at the minimum and blah, blah, blah. And like, and I can't even conceal a, a P365. What am I going to do? Whereas like, you're looking at people and they're like, how do you conceal, you know, uh, you know, a full size gun. And it, it has everything to do with the holster design it, with the belt in, and, and, and maybe clothing choice plays a factor for sure. Um, but I, but mainly the holster design. And, and so, Um, you know, this, this, the safety aspect is really important, obviously for responsibility wise, but even like just the design element of it or the design features of it is, it can, can even lead you to stop carrying altogether, which, you know, isn't ideal if Mm -hmm. you're trying to be a concealed carrier. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, we, we send a survey out to people who take concealed carry classes from, from an instructor, at concealedcarry.com. We send one out at six months after the class, another one out at 18 months after the class. And in those surveys, we ask questions to the effect of, if you're not currently carrying, which of the following factors contributes most to your decision? And more than 50% of people who are not currently carrying at that time, more than half, pick one of two things on that survey, either difficulty concealing or discomfort when concealing. So those two things combined you know, are, are, represent more than half the people who give up. So, yeah, got to have a good holster, and it's just, oh, man, one of those things. I've had so many crappy holsters in my lifetime, and um, I feel embarrassed, frankly, by them, but you you might be in that group. So let me, let me just quickly go through these four rules that we mentioned. We say a quality holster that meets the four rules. Here are the four rules. Rule number one, the holster must fully cover the trigger guard in such a way so as to make the depression of the trigger impossible while the gun's in the holster. So, and these, these rules are in order of most importance, right? So that's the number one thing a holster needs to do. Like a holster's number one job is to make it so that when the gun's in there, ain't nothing going to touch the trigger. Nothing's going to touch the trigger. Nothing's going to access the trigger. Nothing's going to move the trigger. Nothing's going to bump the trigger. Nothing's going to, you know, penetrate into, through, or somehow into the holster and get to the trigger. So, um, yeah, that's number one requirement. Okay. Okay. Number two, the holster must fully retain the gun sufficiently for normal daily activity in such a way that the gun does not come out of the holster unless the user intends it to, right? So we have to have sufficient firearm retention in the holster so that if on my normal daily activities, the gun doesn't fall out. And ask ask me how I know, right? Like that—that's that's, that's going to be a problem. It's going to be super embarrassing. I've been there. Had my gun fall out of a holster before. So... Yeah, that's number two requirement. Like it's just got to hold it in. There's some holsters have adjustable retention. If that's the case, you got to understand how that works and how to manage that and how to keep it locked down in place once you've adjusted it. Uh, But, yeah, we we can't be in a world where doing jumping jacks uh, or playing around with the kids or whatever the things are that you do in a a day, running down the street because someone's chasing you, that's going to cause your, your gun to come bouncing out of the holster and fall onto the ground or getting it out of the car. That's a common one. Uh, a lot of people I know who, have, who who admit to having had this kind of a failure would admit that they their gun came out of their holster when they got in or out of the car. Something about the nature of the way they sit down, pressure from the seat, you know, things like that. So, uh, yeah, rule number two: mm-hmm. gotta gotta have retention uh, for the gun into the holster. Rule number three is very similar. That is, that the holster has to be retained to the body. So the Yes, important that gun not come out of holster unless me grab gun out of holster, but also important that holster not fall out of my pants and onto the ground with the gun in it. So that would be a, another potential failure, right? So the holster itself has to be retained to the body uh, effectively. And a lot of people, by the way, they think their holster meets this rule until they take a really good defensive handgun class and they go through some some draws and some, you know, some holster work, and that's when they find out that holster comes off a lot easier than they would like. So that's a, that's a big one, and then last but not least, rule number four: uh, you need to be able to get a solid, good, you know, shooting grip, master grip, combat grip—you call whatever you want—on the gun from the holster. So when you go to draw, you should be able to grip the gun such that when you come, you know, when you remove the gun from the holster and present it to target, your grip on that ho- on that gun is good. It does not require adjustments. Um, it's not poor it's it's exactly where it should be and you're able to do that from the draw so there's a quick run through of the four rules uh, Matthew any additional insights you would you would add to that
1: yeah the, the, I, the only thing I, I would say is is so these are the four fundamental things you know uh, foundational I guess attributes or, or whatever you would say uh, for each for, for every holster that we would recommend as you know f- for a concealed carrier. Now, there probably are some here, uh, s- some holsters that people y- would use um, that might not fit these criteria. Or, so let's say, for example, let's say a, a pocket holster, right? There, there, you could argue, okay, does that always retain in the pocket? Well, hopefully, it's supposed but, to. I mean, it's supposed to. Um, but you know, by the nature of it, right. Is, is that, you know, is it as secure as a clip? Probably not. Um, how about like an off body carry? Is there a time and a place for off body carry Poss- possibly sure. for you? And, 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 is that like retained to the body? Well, you can argue, you know, is it uh, sure if the bag is uh, retained to the body and it, re- so like you, what we're saying is like, these are the this is what you should look look for. If your holster um, isn't protecting the trigger guard, doesn't allow for a grip and these types of things, c- you're seriously. Not only could you potentially be doing something safety wise that could hinder you, um, but you, you could also performance wise, which in the long run, if we're looking at this as far as, as application to self-defense performance wise, if I can't get the gun, Right. If I can't get a good grip on the gun because of the design of the holster, then is that a safety issue? Well, sort of. If I need to use the gun to defend myself, it's a safety issue. Right. So
0: big safety um, issue. (laughs) And
1: and so and so and and obviously there are gonna be people there are there are different types of holsters, different ways to carry holsters. Um, you know, somebody in the comments mentioned about shoulder holsters, you know. Um they like their shoulder holsters. That's that's fine. Like if, if you if you use a shoulder holster and you weighed all the pros and cons and that worked for you and, and your life. then, then have at it. Um, but this is just the basic, you know, fundamental stuff, the foundational stuff that every, every holster uh, should have. And then, you know, depending on how you, where you carry that holster on your body might determine, you know, a, a little bit more, should it be, you know, it, 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 is a leather holster better than a Kydex? Maybe in certain positions, maybe not. And maybe, you know, so it's um, without getting into like the, you know, a whole podcast about holsters, which we've done so many times, and it's very easy, like you said, um, these are just the foundational things. So we're not, we're not telling you, you can't,
0: you know. Yeah. And for me, these are these four rules, as we've quickly gone through them, are principles that should endure to all holster types. Pocket holsters, shoulder holsters, ankle holsters, off-body carry holsters, OWB holsters, IWB holsters, chest rigs, drop leg holsters, apparel holsters. Like for me, we we came up with these rules and we wrote them and, and designed them a way that they should apply to all those. Mm-hmm. So. You know, if yeah, if you reached for your your purse or your backpack or your little you know sling bag for a gun, and you go to grab the gun and and it the, it doesn't come free of the bag, the bag comes with the gun as you're trying to draw, that's a violation, of rule number three, right? In, in the same way as if I if I had IWB and I went to grab the gun and the holster came out of the pants with it, so we you know these these rules should be universal across across the board no matter what you try and carry uh, there was a comment made here about belts uh, for from a live viewer and I know we've mentioned belts a few times I actually do not have belt on my required list here my my 10 things we're talking about today in today's episode that can still carry a shopping list because I think um, one it could be done without a belt there are things like the Ulti clip, for example, that you can you can attach a holster to directly to pants very effectively, without a belt. Uh, you might carry in a shoulder holster or an off-body rig or something like that, where uh, a concealed carry belt is not not required. Uh, but certainly, if you're carrying IWB and you're using a holster that is designed to clip onto a belt, then in order to achieve rule number three of our four rules, you're going to need a good belt, um, and and that's why some are made and sold. Uh, as concealed carry belts or gun belts so i think that's a valid comment but i I, it's not on my list of required concealed carry shopping list
1: and 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 by the way uh i know we kind of mentioned this throughout the podcast typically but like if you go to the show notes you'll you'll be able to get um a link to all these articles that we're talking about and um i'll make sure that we we include you know the the four the four rules for holsters and, and all that stuff that we're talking about. So if, if there's something that you hear, jot it down, you know, and, and go back to the to the show notes and you'll be able to find the links.
0: Yep, absolutely. All right, moving down our list, the shopping list for concealed carry. The next one, this is one that – um if there's one that could be removed, if someone said, Jacob, you got to remove something from this list, this is the one I would remove. But I still think it's extremely important for responsible concealed carriers, and that is – a dedicated range bag to hold all your range-related gear.
1: Yeah.
0: So y- you're going to have to go to the range. You're going to have to shoot ammo on occasion in order to be a responsible concealed carrier. There's no way around that. And because of that, because you're going to have to go to a gun range on occasion, you're going to need to take certain gear with you. And for me, a, a range bag becomes required because it, one, ensures you never forget anything because you can leave it packed all the time. Uh, two... It helps you take more of the things you need because, especially if it's designed for this purpose, but it's not some repurposed backpack. But if it's designed for this purpose, then it probably makes it really easy to have, you know, eye pro and ear pro and ammo and targets and all the things. Uh, so, it also, by having a dedicated range bag, it keeps you from making the mistake of repurposing that bag you took to the gun range a couple of weeks ago as your carry-on and trying to go through a metal detector at the, at the airport with it and wondering why the, why the dog is now sniffing you. So, just for whatever that's worth, a dedicated range bag to hold all the things is on my list.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I really can't add anything useful. Um, I, I, You know, you, you mentioned you would take this. I mean, we have to have 10. It has to be an even number and you couldn't <laughs> do 8. So, we had to do 10.
0: Well, I technically cheated, we could remove this and still have ten. Tech. there's technically eleven and that and frankly, the next thing on this list is is listed as one thing but it's really two so I did cheat there's mm-hmm. technically anyway all right matthew next on my list quality <laughs> safety, eyewear, and electronic earwear
1: yeah i i mean in <laughs> like here's i'll full disclosure here for a for a long time i didn't I didn't wear proper eye eye protection when I was shooting. Um, and you know, I didn't grow up learning about guns, like you know, shooting guns, hunting, or anything like that. I I, I've, I learned to shoot in the Marine Corps. That was the first time I shot. And believe it or not, they're not super big on wearing eye protection or ear protection when you're shooting. Um, so you know, we're I it wasn't a big thing. Like there, you 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 had to bring ear protection to the range. If somebody didn't show up, you picked up cigarette butts and shoved them in the in the dude's ear, and that was their ear protection. Um, wasn't issued. It was like you're shooting, whatever, and so people just like, okay, whatever. And um, and so and certainly, you know, as a grunt and stuff, like we didn't, I I I didn't get issued earplugs. And when we went overseas and stuff and did stuff like, weren't wearing earplugs and eye protection. So it was just something that carried over to my shooting um, when I got out and I never, I never wore eye protection. I wore ear protection. Um, but you know, it wasn't not all the time. And so it, it does make a difference. And especially as you get older and you see more, um, people get injured and you realize like, Hey, you know, I'm not an indestructible 28 year old dude, you know, who, if I take some shrapnel to the eye, they'll just put, put a new eye in and I'll be okay. You know, it's like, you start getting old. You start to think about things and you're like, man, maybe I want to be able to see and hear my kids talk to me when I'm, you know, 50 years old. So, um, it, it is important in it and, and, you know, if I, I think the biggest hurdle for people are those that wear prescription glasses and like trying to get, uh, say like, well, do my prescription glasses count as, as eye protection in. Most likely the answer is no um, and so it's like well, then they grab a pair of clear eye protection try to put it over and it distorts their vision it's falling off it doesn't fit well and so I think the biggest issue is for people that we have a pre- uh, prescription eye you know a prescription for their eye eyeglasses and you have to get like a a prescription um, uh, you know eye uh, eye protective you know protective eyewear that is a prescription that's more expensive and you can't just go to the store i think that's the biggest hurdle for most people
0: no you're not wrong um that's not something i've had to deal with you know myself up till this point in life (laughs) probably (laughs) later that's coming but i i've also changed my mind on how important quality eyewear is like if you'd asked me five six years ago you know what hey jacob i guess i need some safety glasses what should i do i've been like Dude, go to Home Depot and get some with the picture of the construction worker. They'll be $10 to $15. Those will be more than adequate. But the more I've learned, obviously, the more I've been around this industry, the more I've learned that that's, there are different levels of quality in, gla- in safety glasses. And the, the $20 ones are not as good as the $200 ones. I'm not even close. So I think you're going to have to th- – th- and this might be one of those places. We all have budgets. So if, if you're listening to this and you're just starting out and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is this is adding up. Like this is starting to sound really expensive. That these guys are going down this shopping list, and it's like I only got so much money I can allocate to this little part of my life. Well, then maybe maybe you have to start with some fifty dollars safety glasses, and down the road that's a thing you upgrade. That's a thing you say, okay, I'm going to spend. Some, it's time for me to get some good safety glasses. I've been doing this a lot. I go to the range often. and it's it's time for me to buckle down and and throw some cash down. Um, I think that's that would that would be a fine approach. Like I would not you know shame you on that, uh, but I do think that it's worth noting that you probably do need to spend um, in the ballpark of 75 to hundred dollars minimum to get a really good pair of safety glasses. And I'll tell you, the more I am around guns, the more I do this professionally, the more instances I can like personal stories I can relate to you of times I've seen safety glasses save people from going blind on a gun range. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it like, Ten years ago, I've been like, yeah, I you know, I've seen it on YouTube, but but today, like, I can tell you several personal stories uh, of times where it's like, Phew, thank goodness for those glasses. Um, so, for whatever that's worth, like, you don't want to be the the, the guinea pig on that one. I promise. Um, yeah, and and you, I also mentioned I, this is a cheater, right? Because there's two in one here. We talk about eyewear, but also earwear, so safety glasses. And protection for your ears as well. Um, you need, you need, you need to protect your ears. Most people do do that. I don't, I don't think, I don't see people at a gun range without ear protection shooting because I think we all like to, you know, not have ringing pain in our ears every time we go shooting. But for whatever it's worth, that's another one of those places where something cheap probably is adequate more or less, but spending some money and getting something of higher quality is probably worth doing in time. And, and luckily you don't spend as much as you used to to get quality electronic ear protection. Even for 40, 50, 60, $70, you can get some pretty decent electronic ear muffs. And for most people, that's more than adequate. Um, for people who, you know, they do this for a living or they're competitive shooters, maybe they want to get something even higher end than that. But for most people, you probably could get away with a $40 to $80 investment and have a really good pair of electronic earmuffs. And I think electronic earmuffs, I, I specify that in the requirement because I think it's important you be able to hear human voices when you're on a gun range. So blocking out you know, negative, harmful, bad, loud noise above the safe hearing level is important, but also allowing in human voices is important for safety and, and for enjoyment on a gun range. So that's why it's worded quality, safety eyewear, and electronic earwear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'll second the electronic you know, here where I mean, you, you hit on the, the just enjoyment. I mean, it is so, if you haven't used, you know, electronic muffs, I, I, I would highly suggest it. it will change the way when you go to a course, the way you're able to receive information, you're able to talk, you're not screaming. It's just so much more natural. Um, yeah. Uh, Night and day. Totally.
0: Yeah. 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 All right, next on my list here and we're not we're getting pretty close to the end. It's not that long of a list, right? We only I said there were 10 things. Quality trauma kit with and then I got some disclaimed like minimum components here. So a quality trauma kit with a minimum of a tourniquet, chest seals, pressure bandage and hemostatic dressing.
1: Yeah, this is this has been a good a, a good thing I think I've seen over the last several years is the emphasis on individual um, first aid equipment or trauma gear. Like, I think we all, people that are defenders and, and shoot and stuff always, you know, understood, Hey, you know, training with firearms is inherently dangerous. People get injured. So there's a, there's a trauma kit up at the, at the, you know, at the shoot house or on the range and, and, and and it's good to have one. But like, I think that we've really come to the, to, to the point of like, it's almost, um, a given, that everybody should have individual gear. Um, it, and whether or not you carry that every day, I'm, that's not the, really the, the point, the, the, the point of this is that when you go to the range, you need to have individual gear that you have on you or within arm's reach. Um, that is your own, that, you know, what's in there, that it's not expired, um, that it's staged properly and that, you know, because just the fact that they have a, you know, trauma kit on the range somewhere is not going to be beneficial to you if you need it and you get there and the tourniquets are, you know, gone or not staged or there's no, no you know, like you need to have your own gear. And this is, this is why it's, it's so important. This is so important.
0: Yeah, and, and beyond the gun range etiquette safety thing, there's also the reality of, you know, in a, in a defensive shooting, being having access mm-hmm. to that kind of uh, gear. Or mm-hmm. for other non-gun related um, medical emergencies, you know, doing something stupid with a kitchen knife or being in a car accident or any other number of potential uh, situations where you might save your life or life of a loved one by having a trauma kit available to you. So, mm-hmm. you know, I could – my, we got to kind of draw a line again. This is the required list. Like right? This is the shopping list, right? So I think, you know, above and beyond, like going the extra miles, having a trauma kit in every level of the house and every vehicle, on the range bag, on the camping bag, um, you know, in my pocket or around my ankle and, you know, all the things, right? Like ideally, you just never really be more than about 15 yards from a, from a trauma kit. But that may not be realistic and you got to start somewhere. So I think that a responsible concealed carrier has at least one trauma kit. And that trauma kit... Uh, does go with them to a gun range. Probably is attached to the gun uh, to the uh, range bag when you go to the range, or at least it's maybe it's in the car all the time. And then it, when you go to the range, you pull it out of the car and you take it with you. But it's it's relatively accessible for everyday use. Um, and I think that it's not a good trauma kit unless it has those four items I mentioned. And of course, we could go split hairs on those four items. But you got, I mean, a tourniquet is required in a, in a good trauma kit. If you don't have a tourniquet and a, and a good tourniquet, obviously, and we'll we get into that some other time. Chest seals. I, for me, if you don't have chest seals, like that's just not a good, not a good trauma kit. Um, that those are minimum requirements. Um, a hemostatic impregnated dressing, or just hemostatic gauze, or whatever you want to call it. Like, think quick clot, kaido gauze, um, Salox. Uh, you know, one of those kinds of of things that's got some sort of active clotting agent impregnated in the gauze for packing wounds and junctional areas. Uh, and of course, you know, a pressure bandage. Now, you might be thinking right now, Jacob, all that sounds fantastic, but I don't know how to use any of that. Well, part of being a responsible, concert carrier is knowing how to use the gear too. So, uh, yes, you need to have a trauma kit. It needs to have a minimum of those four things. But yes, you also need to know how to use those things. And uh, and uh, you know, we'll be a shameless, sh- you know, plug here, I guess, for Mount Man Medical, which has a free online trauma class that would teach you how to use those things we're talking about. So, mountmanmedical.com, You can go get the free education.
1: Yeah, I I, th- I think. Um having the gear being able to use it huge think think about like why we carry a firearm it's because you know if if god forbid we're involved in something um where our life is threatened or somebody else's and and so like we're talking about instances where the likelihood of somebody being severely injured is is high right and 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 so that in in of itself like you know i'm with my family I use force to defend my family. Well, what if my family's injured? Well, now I have to wait for paramedics to get there. And I'm telling you, if you're involved in a shooting, and the paramedics might be down the street, but the par- the, the the police response might be further out, and the, the police response has to clear that area, and make sure the suspect's secure before paramedics are going to come in and start rendering aid to anybody. And so if you want to stick around and wait around until the scene's secure and then paramedics come in and start rendering aid, rather, you know, if you can get to, you know, you can, if, if the situation is secure enough where you can render aid to, your, to a loved one or something like that, right? So that, that's important. Um, and we're far more likely statistically to use, to need trauma gear uh, than our firearm yeah, to right? save you a life in yeah. a save life a life right? a
0: death situation you're more likely to need the trauma yeah. yeah
1: yeah yeah so all these reasons it's it's super it just it's intuitive i think is you know the mindset of a concealed carrier is to protect life and why you know protecting life you know you, you're likely to to need a, a some sort of trauma kit more likely than a firearm so yeah. it, it kind of goes hand in hand
0: spot on Next one on this list is not not a difficult one or a complicated one or luckily even an expensive one. But responsible concealed carry requires owning a cleaning kit with lubricant and cleaner, right? Yeah. Being a responsible gun owner means you have to maintain that tool. And maintaining that tool requires cleaning it, removing yuckies, and lubricating it, right? Adding some sort of oil or lubricant so that metal rubs on metal well and there's some gear required to do that. So that's that's on this list for that reason because that's necessary for responsible gun ownership and therefore, obviously, for concealed carry. So therefore, you're going to have to have a quality cleaning kit with lubricant and cleaner. Yep.
1: Yeah, got keep, it. keep your gun lubed. Easy one. <laughs> keep it oiled. That's right.
0: right. Next on this list uh, is a great you – know, on the article, we got a great picture of Matthew getting hit in the face here. So yeah. next on my list, and I I, could t- I can take some, some – I get some, a little bit of pushback from people in this one. But on my list of the required concealed carry shopping list for a responsible concealed carrier is pepper spray. Now, <clears throat> I wouldn't have believed this 10 years ago, maybe not even five years ago, but today I feel very strongly about this. Uh, it, it's just my opinion. And, and I know that it, it sounds like a bold statement, but I find it irresponsible or at least naive to carry a firearm for self-defense and not have pepper spray available to you um, or at least some form of less lethal defensive tool. And I think pe- it's in my opinion that for most of us, pepper spray is the no brainer choice. Um, so yeah. What do you think, Matthew?
1: Yeah. In, I've used pepper spray. I've been hit with pepper spray. Like, I've used pepper spray as a, as a, as a- police officer. Uh, and I've been pepper sprayed multiple times. I've had multiple exposures and stuff, um, purposeful and third, you know, inadvertent exposures from other officers. Um, and like, not it's true that not everybody responds the same way to pepper spray. Um, but there is a response to, for the majority of people. And I think, you know, it is, if you think, if you watch a lot of like maybe, uh, uh, interactions between people, um, you know, that, that led to deadly f- somebody using deadly force or producing a firearm or something. Some of these probably could have been handled with less lethal, w- something like pepper spray. And so, while maybe they weren't arrested or charged for using their firearm because it, you know it was justified in in, in the totality of this incident, um, it might not have had to get to that level, um, which protects you from you know, a, a higher, you know, um, I guess, threshold or danger of, you know, a, a rogue prosecutor or ending up in jail or whatever, like, if we can avoid that, right. And so I, I, I'm not saying don't use a firearm, not, not at all, like when you have to, of course, I'm just saying, if if you had a tool that you had on you that you could use, um, that would be more appropriate before that, it would be great. And and I, I disregard, you know, I, I know some people are like, well, you know, if, what if I carry pepper spray and I use fire, firearm, isn't somebody going to say, you know, you, you had access to this, and you didn't, and and that's going to trip me up in court, it's like, you know, your use of force is, is, if, if you're justified in using force, you're just deadly force, you're justified in using that force. Um, so don't, don't think that because you had a less lethal option and you didn't use it if you're justified in using deadly force great if you're not then yeah that's going to be a problem whether you had pepper spray or not
0: yeah i mean the counter argument is that couldn't you also argue that the fact that you had pepper spray on you means that you're the kind of person who would only go to the gun if you absolutely felt it was necessary isn't that like part of the narrative though this guy carries pepper spray because he'd rather use it than a gun if he could right so i think you know those those arguments at very least balance each other out um, but I think that it's, it's, it's nonsensical regardless. Um, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If, if the only tool you have on you to defend yourself is a gun, then then you're very limited in your options. And unfortunately, you're left in a situation where when there's any ambiguity at all as to whether or not the threat you're facing is potentially deadly, then you're in a really awkward spot where you both you know, ethically, legally, and morally really can't defend yourself because you don't have an appropriate tool for the, for the threat you're facing so you know in in the words of uh the legendary lawman chuck haggard right like pepper spray is for everything between a harsh word and a gunfight like all that stuff in the middle which is way more likely to happen to you than a gunfight right like you're way more likely to need pepper spray or to be in a confrontation where pepper spray is the appropriate response than you are to ever be in a confrontation where a gun is the appropriate response and because it's so cheap because it's so inexpensive, because it's so easy to use, because it's so small and easy to have on you, I find that there's really no excuse to not having it. Uh, You can even take it some places where you can't take the gun. So it's a non-permissive environment opportunity as well. So, yeah, pepper spray. Uh, Can't say enough about that. And quality pepper spray, of course. And I'll just just disclaim by saying that for me, I just restrict my students to buying saber and palm and palm is my personal preference pom but those two brands are brands that i feel very confident in um, there might be others that are very good but those two are two that i feel you know the people who, who know things and the research i've done as well would suggest to me that those two are brands that you can absolutely count on for sure all right last last we're hitting about coming up on our one hour mark to here for today's show so this is the last on the list And I should quickly add that our last second and last sponsor message as well. This episode is also brought to you by KSG Armory. We had a very enthusiastic discussion earlier, Matthew and I, about holsters. And KSG Armory holsters are some of the best holsters in the game. And what I can absolutely promise you is that every KSG Armory holster meets those four criteria. And all of them check all four of those boxes, I promise. So, you know, understanding that and also understanding that's a company and a brand that makes holsters that are optimized for comfort and concealment. They understand uh, wings and wedges and all those kinds of things and how to best optimize them. I I can just assure you that's a brand that you can feel comfortable and safe with. And they have a 60-day, no questions asked return policy. So once you get that holster, if it doesn't work for you for any reason, you know, you have 60 days to get your money back 100%. So check them out at KSG. K-S-G, stands for knowledge, skills, uh, gear, ksgarmory.com. Last thing on this list, Matthew, and this is one I don't think I'll get any pushback on, a quality high-output flashlight. And I don't mean a weapon-mounted light. Certainly that's an option. But I do think that required for responsible concealed carry is a high-quality, high-output, handheld flashlight. Uh, What are some reasons why I would feel so strongly about that, Matthew? What do you think?
1: Well... And I'm glad you differentiated between a weapon-mounted light and a handheld light. They serve different purposes. They, you can use them. You can you you can actually have both of them. Sure, and it's not violating any. You know, it's all good.
0: Everything. More the barrier So
1: yeah. um yeah. One is one is you know uh, mounted to your firearm. The other you're talking about a handheld flashlight, so you can identify threats, right? If if at night you can identify a threat without having to point a gun at it. That's that's important because before we point guns at things, we want to identify them that they need to have a gun pointed at them. And if the only light you have is on your firearm, it kind of makes it difficult to do that. Um, so safety wise, uh, that's number one, like identifying a threat, identifying things, um, and, and, and being able to do that. Um, and practically speaking, like having a handheld flashlight, um, you know, it can, it can also, you know, I, if, if you can identify, uh, you know, if, if you're, uh, let's say you do have to use uh, medical equipment, or you do have to treat somebody having having light at, at night in, in a situation to be able to see things what's going on is important. So, I mean, there's there's practical application to having a handheld light, um, administratively and all that kind of stuff. But to, to, to differentiate out between because I, I know like some people will say, well, I got one on my gun or maybe I should put a, a weapon on light because police have them on their firearms. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But they serve two different purposes.
0: Yeah. And if you want a weapon on light, that's all good. I just don't think it's necessary to be a responsible concealed carrier. It, it certainly does limit your holster options. Uh, significantly, Absolutely. when you put a, a a light on your gun, maybe, and maybe you just only have a weapon of light to your on your home defense gun and not your carry gun or whatever, it doesn't. That it's all good is the answer. Like me and Matthew were sort of like, hey, if you want a weapon of light, no problem by us. All good. I think that's a good thing. Uh, maybe it restricts you a little bit on holsters, but there's no downside. But that being your only light is not okay. Uh, it, I find that irresponsible. I think I think it a re- responsible concealed carry requires. A high-quality, high-output handheld flashlight. Um, a handheld flashlight has two uh, purposes in this defensive arena, which we are we are discussing today. The first one, which you already pointed out, Matthew, right, which is identification of a, a potential target. Right, I need to identify: is that really a threat? Is that really a target? Is that something that requires me to deal with or not? Or is that my kid who's you know up late at night? You know, thinks he needs string cheese at 3 a.m. because teenagers are weird like that. Um, or is that, you know, some, some other per, something else entirely that well, once I light it up in that parking garage, I'm going to be able to see, oh, no, that's, that's not a threat. So I, you know, that, that's purpose one. Purpose two is that the flashlight itself can be its own defensive tool. And I don't mean like hitting someone with a flashlight. This is not, you know, me, you know, thinking that we should all carry around the, the the beast combat mag lights with four D cell batteries that were probably popular mm-hmm. when Matthew was a cop uh, for for potential you know suspect beatings. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean that the actual light output, the brightness coming out of the flashlight itself, uh, can sometimes be an effective tool to deter uh, or to at least deflect a potential attack. Or attacker. Um, you know, I, I have on me right now my Ready Up Gear Spark flashlight. These are out of stock right now. I tell everybody to go buy one, but I love this flashlight quite a bit. And it's just, it fits in my hands really small, but it's 550 lumens of, of, of lightness. My webcam just got really upset with me for flashing it. And this can be a very effective tool. I mean, shine this in someone's face in a, in a, in a relatively low light environment. That person's probably going to be blind for, you know, a good solid 30 seconds of, of them not being able to see me at all. And they're going to be really angry with me, also. So I got to bear that in mind. But but that could be an effective deterrent uh, or 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 you know defensive tool. So uh, for me, that's the secondary use of a, of a good flashlight.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah, and I and I will I will say that like every time I used my flashlight as an impact weapon, it was justified. It was within policy. So.
0: It's probably yeah, out so. of so just yeah, didn't didn't want to be accused of anything, you know. Yeah, you just want to clear that just, up. Just in case anyone's wondering. Okay. Um, but there's no question, I mean, you were you were a cop. You guys were taught the value of just being able to put a, a bright light in someone's face sure. and what that does mm-hmm. for their perception, for their ability to even tell who you are, where you are, how big you are, what you're doing with your hands. There's any number of advantages of just lighting someone up. So, mm-hmm. you know, a good flashlight comes in handy. And frankly, of all the crap I got on me all the time my gun, my tourniquet, my flashlight, my pepper spray, my lock picking set, my fire starting <laughs> tools of all this awesome prepper that's on me right now. The thing I actually use the most often, oh, my knife, I didn't even mention my knives. The thing I actually use most often that's all, all that stuff is, is the flashlight. That's the thing that comes up. And not to shine in people's faces because I like drop something somewhere and I got to find it. But yeah, that actually gets used all the time. So there you go. There you go, guys. I'm going to just quickly review our concealed carry shopping list. 10 things that I think are absolutely required for responsible concealed carry. Number one, a concealed, a concealable handgun with a minimum of 10 round capacity of nine millimeter or greater caliber. Number two, name brand hollow point ammo for defensive use. Number three, a quality quick access safe for emergency staging. Number four, a quality holster that meets our four holster rules. Number five, a range bag to hold all your range-related gear. Number six, quality, safety, eyewear, and electronic earwear. Number seven, a quality trauma kit with a minimum of a tourniquet, chest seals, pressure bandage, and hemostatic dressing. Number seven, a quality handgun cleaning kit, lubricant cleaner. Number eight, oh, I must have got my count off somewhere. Number eight, anyway, next, pepper spray. And last, a quality high-output flashlight. So there you go, folks. There are your... Requirements. If you're going to be a responsible concealed carrier, I think you need to have all those things. There are other things that are important. I don't mean to, to neglect some of the other things that I think are high value uh, in our industry. I'm just, I just think that you know, this is these are bare essential requirements. And so, if you know somebody who's get, who's new at this. Uh, maybe a friend, a coworker, a member of your family who's you know, not been caring for very long, they're new to this consult care, or maybe they're interested in it, this would be a good episode to send them and have them to review this to give them a bit of a sense for some things that need to be on their radar. Matthew, last uh, words or comments from you.
1: Yeah. Just, uh, also just want to reiterate like all those things. I know we threw a lot of information out there and within those categories, there's a lot of nuance and and, and, and information that goes into making wise decisions on what light to buy and what trauma kit and all that stuff. So if you go to the show notes again, um, and, and you go to the article that Jacob wrote, there's for each one of those, uh, categories, um, there are links to articles we've written that explain a little bit about how to choose this or that or benefits of this over that and and some things that w- we've learned along the way so uh, it, can, it can be a, a definitely uh, like a post that you can go to as an anchor post to kind of branch off and, and use as a as a springboard to look at these other other uh, categories of items and things
0: yeah yeah I mean if you've been listening to our podcast for a little while and one of these things we said is like hmm I'm not sure if I'm really, you know, on top of that. The, yeah, go to the show notes, you know, click through, and in all these instances, we have resources that dive into more detail. So I'm glad you brought that up, Matthew. That's really good. All right, folks, that's a wrap for season eight, episode 16 of the Concealed Carry Podcast, the Concealed Carry shopping list, 10 things that are required to be a responsible concealed carrier. Thank you to our sponsors today, which again are CCW Safe and KSG Armory Holsters. We appreciate you guys listening, those who have been with us live, but also those who are listening to the recording. Now, please, please subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you're getting notified every time we release a new episode. You can do that via any of the traditional places you listen to a podcast. Just search Concil Podcast. Uh, or you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or our first Facebook page, where most episodes are also broadcast live via video. Make sure you like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, youtube i don't know all the other places where where we do stuff and check out the other podcasts that are part of the dot podcast network that's a wrap thanks everyone remember to train right train often and train safe so you can fight hard fight fast and fight true take care